I think that a lot of the work that gets done in this field is related to changes in our mind and changes in our heart and changes in our spirit. And those things don't turn on a dime. And so as much as the medical system wants to insist that everything is like strep throat and can be cured in a 10 minute office visit and one prescription, this is much more complex. And so there's a process to it. And I also will say to people regularly, when, especially when they ask like, when am I going to be better? Which people ask me every single day, I try to remind people as much as possible that better is not a destination, better is a process. And so my response frequently is you are better. You're not maybe as better as you want to be, or you're not where you want to be, but you're better than when you were when you started. And so you're on this road and you will continue to walk down this road. And if we think of better as a place that we get to, we miss all the amazing things that happen along the way. Hey there, I'm Anna Holtzman, and this is From Chronic Pain to Passion. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and coach who helps passionate creatives like you learn how to heal from chronic pain and other symptoms so you can reclaim your energy and live the creative life of your dreams. In my past life, I was a disillusioned video editor working in reality TV and struggling with chronic migraine for over 10 years. But after I discovered the mind-body methods that I'll share with you on this podcast, I recovered from the chronic cycle and got back my creative spark. And I want that for you too. So let's get into it. Hello, dear listener. Welcome to today's episode in which I had the pleasure of speaking with someone I greatly admire and consider a mentor. Dr. John Strax is an integrative physician who specializes in chronic health conditions that haven't been helped through conventional Western medicine. He's particularly interested in helping people make the mind-body connection, the connection between what's going on in their lives and what's going on in their bodies, as a way to heal chronic pain. He left his hospital practice in 2017 to co-found what is now Cormendi Health with his wife, Lisa. He works with clients all over the globe through individual sessions, as well as an online membership to help them find healing. I first met Dr. Strax near the beginning of my own journey into healing from chronic migraine and becoming a mind-body practitioner. His expertise is widely known and respected in the field of mind-body medicine, but in my opinion, it's his warmth, kindness, and down-to-earth generosity of spirit that inspire so many of us. In our conversation, he spoke about his own healing journey, as well as the challenges and rewards of doing this work. And I got to ask him a burning question on my mind about how to interact with the mainstream medical world once you've adopted a mind-body approach, which may not always mesh with the approaches of your medical care providers. I certainly got a lot out of our conversation, and I hope that you will too. Dr. Strax, welcome. It's so great to see you, and thank you for making the time to be here. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Um, for folks who are very much steeped in the world of mind body medicine, they all know who you are. Um, but for folks who are listening, who might not be familiar with your work, would you mind, um, telling us what you do and who you help? Sure. So I, uh, I live here in Chicago. I have been in the mind body medicine world for a long, long time now. I had some of my own symptoms that resolved this way in 1999. So almost 25 years ago now before, and that was before I went to medical school. I was in the process of applying to medical school at the time. But once I felt better, I thought like, oh, wow, I'm going to medical school. I could really help people. I want to tell people about the nature of pain and where it comes from. And I told everybody I could find during medical school and everybody looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> and so I tried during my whole medical school career and residency training to move in this direction as much as I possibly could. And I ended up spending a little bit of time with Dr. John Sarno in New York City, who a lot of your listeners probably have heard of who did a lot of this work in the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s. And I also spent a lot of time with Dr. Howard Schubiner in Detroit, Michigan, who wrote the book Unlearn Your Pain and learned a lot from them and from my own reading. And so I moved back to Chicago in 2009 to work at Northwestern University uh, Medical Center. And so the main hospital system in downtown Chicago here and worked there for eight years in their integrative medicine department. So it's my job to work with people who weren't feeling well and try to sort out options that they hadn't necessarily tried or thought about. So anything outside essentially medication or surgery, which included mind-body medicine work too, although it wasn't a whole lot of what I was doing in the hospital system. And so in 2017, I decided to open my own practice and, and left Northwestern. And immediately the mind-body medicine part jumped from maybe 2% of what I was doing to 20% of what I was doing. And then that grew to probably a third of what I was doing pre-pandemic. And during pandemic, we were better able to work with people outside the Chicago area and do telehealth appointments. And we also hired several psychotherapists and a physician assistant. And so now mind-body medicine is probably two-thirds of what we're doing at this point. And so we see a lot of people still who aren't feeling well and no one's quite sure why or what to do, but a lot of people who have decided that their physical symptoms are related not to what's going on in their body so much, but what's going on in their, in their lives. And we work with them like you work with your clients to help them understand that concept and then figure out what to do so they can feel better, really both physically and emotionally. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that with listeners. Um, I know that your, your practice currently has what I, I think is maybe a new or newish name, Cormendi. I don't know if that's um, a further evolution of the practice that you have already had for a long time. It is. And so Cormendi is roughly Latin for mind, body, spirit. And that's how we, we got that name. When I first left the hospital system, opened my own practice, it was just named after me. It's called John Strax MD. And that's how people found me. And that's what we called it. And then 
we brought in Michelle Grimm, who's a colleague of ours as a physician's assistant, and then Dr. Lauren Shapiro, and then Dr. Jan Dubinsky, and then Eric Walker, who was affiliated with the Pain Psychology Center in Los Angeles, and more recently, Dr. Howard Schubiner, who joined us about six months ago. We recognized that if all these people were working in the practice, it didn't really make sense to call it just me anymore, because it's not just me, it's expanded significantly past just me and all the expertise that all these other practitioners bring in. And so that's how we decided to rebrand and, and come up with a new name that's more inclusive of the work that all of us do, not just the work that I do. And for folks who aren't familiar with those people, their names and what they do, um, what I've been really intrigued by is that you've included in your practice folks who are, are psychotherapists who are, you are obviously a medical doctor and a range of other folks. So it's really an integrative practice in a way that is maybe becoming a little bit more common, but is still not all that common out there. I feel like it's not that common. And I think the, you know, the medical system and your listeners know this is very much focused on the biomedical model. And so, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, probably you go in to see a physician's office and you get a very physical answer for what's going on. And so usually it's here, take this prescription. Sometimes it's um, here, go to physical therapy. Occasionally it's, I want to do an intervention. I want to do an injection or I want to do surgery, but it would be rare that somebody would have a conversation about anything else. I was talking, um, Michelle, who's our Michelle Graham, our physician's assistant, she and I actually were talking about this this morning. She historically has been a surgeon. She trained in plastic surgery. And I didn't know does. that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Amazing. yeah. Um, and she's, you know, one of the more holistic people I know in the world. And so she's had this evolution in, in both her life and her work over the last decade. But she still does some work in an orthopedics practice. And she said she was talking with a patient. Patient came in to see her about some arthritis. And Michelle started talking to her about the mind-body connection. And they said the patient was so grateful. She said, oh, I've been trying to have this conversation for years and nobody will engage me with it. So thank you so much for just bringing up that these topics and these options. And ah. so we know that people are looking for these conversations, but medical system isn't set up to, to handle that or to manage that. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear. Um, I also know that in addition to having practitioners who come from a wide variety of backgrounds in your practice, you also do a wide variety of things. And one of those things is that you are on the advisory board of Curable, which is both an, it's an app and they also have a, an online group program, which I'm honored to be one of the facilitators for, I get to interact with you through that because you are one of the physicians who does the physician Q and a sessions with curable. And the way that, um, I first came into contact with you was early in my pain journey. What really, what started my pain recovery journey was finding the curable app. And that then led me down the wormhole, um, to, and one of the pla first places it led me was to um, a an in-person workshop that was hosted by Dr. Howard Schubner, who you mentioned. Um, it was in Detroit and I met you there and meeting you was, you know, a, a really wonderful part of 
my recovery and learning journey also as a practitioner, I participated um, in one of your groups when I was early on in trying to figure out this, my way out of chronic migraine. Um, and I want to really thank you for that. Um, and I know that you've told your pain recovery story many times on many different podcasts that folks can easily find, but, um, would you share, you know, in whatever kind of a nutshell it fits into the personal experience that led you into this work that you do? Yeah. And, you know, lately I've been, there, there are two and, and honestly, probably three experiences that I've had over the course of my life. And so the one that I normally tell happened 25 years ago. I'll talk about that. I'll talk a little bit about what happened more recently too, because I've been talking a little bit more publicly about that recently. And so 25 years ago, I fell down a flight of stairs in downtown Chicago and didn't think much of it. But then maybe three, four months later, I started having some trouble walking. I was dragging my foot behind me. I was tripping in the hallways at work. And that progressed to, to numbness in my feet and pain in my legs. And then it progressed to my arms and hands. And I was having trouble typing. And I was a division one varsity athlete in college. I've always been very physically active and I was having trouble keeping up and not doing much activity anymore. My life got very, very small for about nine months, just focused on pain and symptoms and what they were and what to do about it. It was, you know, it's hard to remember this now. It was in the very early days of the internet. And so spent a lot of time searching for what this might be and why I wasn't feeling well. And everybody had various theories, but I, I wasn't getting better. And the breakthrough for me happened at a cocktail party. I was talking to a friend who sort of unrelatedly was talking about how he'd had years and years and years of back pain. And he said it was the night he was hanging from his ceiling in his anti-gravity boots, trying to stretch out his spine that he thought like, there's got to be a different way. And so that led him to find Dr. Sarno's book, Healing Back Pain. And he read it and it made sense. And at that point in his career, Dr. Sarno was only seeing patients from New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania. And my friend from Chicago called up and said, I'd like to come see you. And he said, where do you live? And he said, I live in Chicago. He's like, oh, I can't see you. And he said, did I, did I say Chicago? I'm sorry, I just moved to New York. It's like, great, you're here on Tuesday. And he said, by the time he got in to see Dr. Sarno and talked with him and examined and went to, to his lecture, he's like, gosh, I knew, like I was never gonna have back pain again. And, and so I'm listening to him tell this story and I'm, I'm thinking like, I, I know who Dr. Sarno is. I've, I've read that book. I was, um, I was making a career change. I was trying to get into medical school at that time, but I'd been very interested in holistic health and I had done a lot of yoga and a lot of reading about non-traditional healing methods. And so I actually knew who Dr. Sarno was. And I went home that night and got his book off my bookshelf and reread the whole thing. I was like, ah, too much going on in my life, not a problem in my body. And so I was trying to get into medical school, which is stressful. I was um, dating Lisa, who's now my wife, and that relationship was very serious and that was um, freaking me out. And uh, I was having a spiritual crisis on, on top of all of that. And so any one of those things probably would have been fine, but all of them together was too much. And I had so I'd offloaded it into my body. And then once I recognized what was going on, 
I had this powerful recovery, which I've been saying a lot lately, seems to happen amongst those of us who end up doing this work. It's what spurs us on, I think, to try to teach other people about it. And so the next day I went down to my basement, I got my bicycle, I dusted it off, put air in the tires, I hadn't ridden it in over a year. And I got onto the lakefront bike path in Chicago and rode six miles into downtown Chicago. And it was excruciating, it was so painful. But I just kept telling myself, I'm okay, I'm okay. My body's okay. Every pedal, like this is not a physical issue. This is not a physical issue. And after about half an hour, there was this big reduction in symptoms. Things started to melt away. And that led to probably two or three or four months of continued recovery to the point that I was back doing my activities and living my life the way that I had. And then I had very, very few symptoms, small flare-ups here or there, but nothing major until I opened my own medical practice in mm. 2017. And shortly after that, I had this big flare-up where I had been running and I couldn't, I couldn't run anymore. I was having um, sort of overall body pain that was probably would be labeled as fibromyalgia. And, and I couldn't get a handle on it the way that I normally did. And so this led me to about a year of exploration in a variety of ways. And so one of the things I recognized where there were um, some traumatic events from when I was growing up that I still needed to, even though I'd had psychotherapy before, I still needed to work on them. And so I called a colleague who's a trauma therapist and spent about a year working with her. I also enlisted some other healers I know who do more body-centered work. And so a massage therapist and a, a chiropractor I really like and, and an acupuncture colleague who's fantastic and a, an energy worker. And they worked on me a little bit in a variety of ways. And, and it slowly got back to doing what I was doing. I remember one morning specifically where I woke up and I was so achy and I said, I just have to do something different. And so I went on to our public library's website and they had a 20 lesson Tai Chi course that you could rent online. And so I rented it and just started doing Tai Chi and moving my body and started, that was sort of the nadir of it. Started slowly feeling better. I eventually flipped that over to, um, to a yoga practice that really accelerated during pandemic. And, and these days sort of back to doing just about whatever I want to do. I play golf with my son regularly. I do an hour yoga a lot of days. I get 10,000 steps a day. I am not shy about, about more aggressive exercise when I want to do it. And the other thing that happened is that that experience, like the first experience, I learned a ton about the practice of medicine through that experience. And so a new appreciation for what our patients and clients go through and what it's like, again, to be sick and not find that there are easy answers there. It also led me to a whole level deeper. Like I had a big understanding of pain and, and mind-body medicine and how this happens. And this led me to a whole new level of that understanding the, the physiology of pain and how it forms and what makes it better. And so the amount that I know about mind-body medicine now dwarfs what I knew when I first opened this practice. And I knew a lot then. And I think this experience more recently helped me get to the next stage where I needed to be.
Thank you so much for sharing those connected stories. And I was writing down some notes as you were speaking, because, you know, of course, there are many different themes that are, you know, unique to your story in the particulars, but very much connected to themes that come up for lots of the folks that we work with that, you know, that come up for me, that tend to come up for all of us. And one of those themes, I think, is that I think sometimes the more obvious stressors are the things that are difficult, like applying to med school or, you know, experiencing loss or trauma. The ones that tend to surprise us sometimes are things like, you know, entering into a serious relationship that we want to be in, but that's a big deal. It's a big life change or starting up your own practice. Like that's obviously something you worked toward and really wanted and it's a big identity shift. And, you know, I, something I talk about a lot with clients is that when we're expanding in our lives in ways that we're wanting to expand, that can trigger the fears that want us to stay small. Yeah. And I think that as human beings, we're wired to keep the status quo. I think that our ancestors who didn't pay attention to that, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll go jump off the edge of the world. That sounds fun. Like, they're not the ones who pass their genetics on to, to us. And so I say it regularly, even good changes are still changes and our bodies will react and our spirits will react. And, and I've said a lot that the most common reason that somebody under the age of 40 would come and see me for this is a change in marital status or a change in parenting status. And I have you know a patient who came to me early on who had had uh, his first back surgery when he got married and his second back surgery five years later when his first child was born. And then he was heading towards his third back surgery five years after that when his second child was being born. And finally, his wife intervened and, and he's done really, really well now that he understands what was going on. I, you know, I used to say getting married and having children. One of my patients came in, he was a longtime patient of Dr. Sarno's, interestingly, and worked with, with one of your colleagues in New York City who called and said he was having a big flare up and in Chicago and could I see him? And so he came in, we talked about it, gave him some pain medication to get through the flare up and talked more about like what was going on in the surface. He's like, I don't, I just don't know. Like everything's going really well. He's like, you know, now that you mention it, my wife's been having a hard time lately. And I said, oh, really tell me about that. And he said, well, we just dropped our oldest daughter off at college. And so it's changed the family structure. I was like, oh, your wife is having, <laughs> I see it's not you at all. Um, and so, right. So, you know, good changes, but, but still changes and, and these things get into our bodies. And if we don't, if we know what's going on, then we can deal with it. It's when we don't know that it's happening that we start to search out answers and people have all kinds of physical names for it, arthritis or, um, uh, you know, fibromyalgia or, um, uh, you know, other labels that we give to, to pain syndromes. And then people start going down those protocols in the medical system. And like, here's this prescription and here's that prescription. I saw a patient recently, just yesterday or the day before who had been given all these pain medications and she was a referral from one of our psychotherapists. And I had seen her a number of times and had a really difficult time 
connecting with her. And that was confusing for the psychotherapist, but she seemed a little standoffish to me and sort of not particularly interested in the recommendations that I was making. And over the last year, she had decided to wean off some of her pain medications. And so she stopped her nortriptyline and she stopped her gabapentin. And she was a completely different person. She was nice and funny and personable and engaged. And what I was reacting to had nothing to do with her. It just had to do with the medication. You think about how many times that gets repeated around the country and around the world on a daily basis. And it's all these people who that's the only option that they're given, but not only was it not helping her, but they're fundamentally changed who she was for this period of time. Wow. Yeah. I've heard a lot of stories that have similar themes to that. It's a, it's such a big topic. Um, there was another, just to, to jump back a bit, there's another theme from your own recovery story that I thought is something that's really valuable for listeners to hear, which is that you used what sounded to me like one particular tool in your initial pain recovery experience. And it was maybe not so much graded exposure. It was just, it was flooding. I didn't have words at the time, but it was flooding. Yes. Yeah. Flooding, um, which I've heard you say many times works for some people does not work for others. You know, if it doesn't work for you, go with something else. And that, um, you know, and what I thought was valuable about your telling those two different recovery stories is that you reached for a whole variety of different tools at different times. And, um, and I'm curious these days, if, you know, thinking about the maintenance that we all do to keep our mind body system regulated what happened to be the tools that you happen to like going to these days for me personally or for my yeah. patient for me personally um, yeah for you personally for, for both right and when i got when i it happened 25 years ago and i got on my bicycle and yes that i wouldn't have language for it back then but it was just a flooding experience i got on my bike i was like i'm going to ride it until either i'm better or i'm dead and, and I was sure enough that I wasn't going to die, that I could do that. But as you said, like, that's not for everybody. And there were reasons I could do that. And I think there are important reasons on the other side in terms of pushing me to do this work that it needed to happen. The other tool that I used back then, interestingly, is that our colleague, Dr. David Schechter in Los Angeles had just, you know, was getting started with his mind-body medicine practice in that time, the early to mid-1990s. And so had recently come out with the mind-body workbook, which is still in publication. And so I got a copy of that and worked through that over the course of maybe a couple of months. And daily writing prompts and putting down my thoughts and feelings about what was going on and being cognizant of the stressors in my life. And, and it's funny because I, you know, I've told that story a lot and I used to tell it and say like, I got on my bicycle, by the time I got home, I was better. And, and then maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was getting ready for a talk and I found the, that I still have that copy of the workbook. And there are all these entries about like, am I sure? I don't know. Nobody's examined me. How do I know for sure? Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe somebody's missing something. And that went on for months. And then the entries eventually got a little bit spaced out. And then there's one six-week pause and one final entry and then nothing. 
after that. But but we forget, right? And I've I've heard patients of mine when they talk publicly about it. One woman in particular who worked really really hard at this and uh, uh, and and has done really really well and is now as a as a neurologist. Um, but you know she had worked for years on this, and somebody asked her like, "How long did it take you to get better?" And she's like, "I, I don't know." six weeks. And I was standing in the back of the room. Like I was standing in the back of the room. I had taken a sip of water. I literally spat out the water. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I've known you for five years and, and sort of all the, like, we forget about how, how much anxiety goes along with it. When we're, once we're on the other side and it seems like, oh yeah, I'm better, but people struggle with, even those of us who are doing really well, um, struggle with uh, the frustration of it and the ups and downs and um, and feeling like, you know, what if, what if we're not going the right pathway? What if this doesn't, isn't going to work? And so these days, personally, um, like I said, I've done a lot of yoga since the start of pandemic. I get up early in the morning before anybody else does. And I've gone through a variety of programs. Um, I try to tend to my spirit when I can and um, reflection time and and reading time. I try to be really good about my emotions and recognizing when when they're present and how should I can express them. And that's something that's always been hard for me. And so I struggle with it, but I try to do it as best as I can. Um, I think on the patient side, you know, I have a list in my mind of the most common reasons that people suffer with physical symptoms. And those include some that I just mentioned, not having enough time for ourselves, keeping our emotions inside. Um, perfectionism is a big one and self-criticism. And so working on the self-compassion side, I think is really important for people. I think our relationships with our uh, partners and loved ones is a can be a big source of symptoms for people and so, and under-recognized. And so I encourage people to work on that. Um, it's, you know, the idea of somatic tracking or paying attention to what's going on in our body through a lens of safety rather than through a lens of fear. I think that's something that's significantly helpful for people. And then like I said, we have three psychotherapists on our staff now. And so there are a lot of people who come in with pretty significant anxiety, depression. Since the pandemic, we see a lot of OCD and helping people settle down those conditions makes a big difference on a physical level also. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that you both, you normalized that the recovery process can take time and it can not have a very clear start or end. I mean, you know, it's this, this ongoing kind of amorphous thing. There can be different tools that are useful at different times. And I also appreciate, cause I've never really heard someone talk about it this way before. I appreciate that you normalized that sometimes in looking back, folks can talk about it as though, yeah, I just did this one simple thing. And then I was healed really quickly. I think, you know, I, I can, the, I can be guilty of this as well. And, and some of my clients have said, you know, I feel really resentful toward those people who say, well, I just read a book. I read Sarno's book and then I was better. And they're really making it harder for the rest of us. But hearing what you described, I thought, well, yeah, no, that makes sense. It's just our perception changes depending on where we are in our process. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of people will say that, like, you know, not only some people say they read a book, but you read these books and the people in the books are saying like, oh, I just read a book or I heard a lecture and mm -hmm. then I was better. And I think a lot of those are just amalgamations of patient experiences as opposed to specific patient experiences. And I say, you know, I admit, right, if somebody reads a book and gets better, they're probably not going to seek me out in my practice and say like, hey, what can you do for me? So I, by default, see people who are struggling with it. But I also will say you know, most people, if they're going to go to a psychotherapist, understand that going to a psychotherapist isn't going to make things better in a day or a week, that there's a process to it and there's some time that needs to go by. And so I think that a lot of the work that gets done in this field is related to changes in our mind and changes in our heart and changes in our spirit. And those things don't turn on a dime. And so as much as the medical system wants to insist that everything is like strep throat and can be cured in a 10 minute office visit and one prescription, you know, even then, right, we find that if I do urgent care work with people in a practice, which I do occasionally, only about half the time is it better after the first time I talk with them. And this is much more complex than that. And so it's like, it just, it, we need to, to give ourselves time to change those aspects of who we are and how we think about this and how we feel about it. And so there's a process to it. And I also will say to people regularly when, especially when they ask like, when am I going to be better? Which people ask me every single day, I try to remind people as much as possible that better is not a destination, better is a process. Yeah. And so my response frequently is you are better. You're not maybe as better as you want to be, or you're not where you want to be, but you're better than when you were when you started. And so you're on this road and you will continue to walk down this road. And if we think of better as a place that we get to, we miss all the amazing things that happen along the way. Something that I find really interesting about your practice is that you, you work in a wide variety of modalities with clients because you are meeting your a medical doctor and you're meeting your clients where they're at. So if they are open to working through a mind body approach, you work with them that way. If they are not open to it yet, or they're simply not open to it at all, you are continuing to work with those clients in the Western medical mode. And because of that interesting perspective of spanning those, those worlds, um, there's a question that I'm really curious to ask you, and it's, it's largely for myself, although because it's for myself, I know that it'll be relevant to a lot of my listeners. So, so maybe I'll just speak from the first person, you know, I'm continuing in my, my journey of evolving in my mind, body understanding. And I have to say that the deeper I have gotten into the mind, body understanding of symptoms, the more um, mistrustful I've become of kind of, you know, Western medical doctors. And I, I just want to say, this is not me saying listeners, you should all now avoid Western medical doctors. No, I, I encourage everyone to kind of check in with themselves and see what works for them best. For myself personally, I've been kind of um, just exploring and questioning, like, do I still want to continue 
going to a GP once a year for this annual checkup that, you know, I was raised to think was a necessary thing to do, you know, that if, and, you know, I grew up in a particular household that was very much focused on medical, um, you know, going to your annual checkup. And if you didn't do it, you could, you know, bad things could happen. So it's very fear fueled and also fueled by wanting to be good. You know, like my mom wants me to go to the doctor. So if I do that, I'll please her. And all of these things that I'm describing, you know, the pleasing impulse, the the fear driven impulse, these are all things that I now understand very well fuel uh, chronic stress. And so they can fuel symptoms. And so, um, you know, I'm questioning, like, if that's the mode in which I'm attending these annual checkups, do I want to keep doing them? Are there other reasons why I might attend an, an annual checkup? If I did, how could I approach it differently so that it's more in tune with where I'm at, you know, with my mind body lens? And so I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think it's a good question. And you know, one of the things that I will say fairly regularly is that pain and symptoms really aren't about damage in the body. They can be, but oftentimes they're not. And if they're not really about damage, they're more about the sense that our brain is, is registering that there may be danger somewhere. And, and our job is to figure out what feels dangerous and is it actually dangerous or does it just feel dangerous? And I say that there are few things I think in our society that feel more dangerous than the medical system as it is. And so, as you said, there's just, there's a lot of fear. I hear a lot of patients talk about practitioners telling them that they're not going to get better, that they're just going to get worse, that they might be in a wheelchair, that if they don't take their medications and they're not going to survive that, you know, a lot of, of statements that aren't true, but are given with great authority by people wearing white coats. And so it's very hard to resist those. You're asking specifically about annual checkups, which is an interesting question, because there's not a ton in the medical literature about the utility of annual checkups. And so it's, um, and so the every year I think is kind of what we've always done, but if you really look at the data, I don't think it necessarily supports it. I think of it a little bit like prenatal care. Mm. And so, or, or, or the way I think about prenatal care. And so I trained in general medicine. So I learned to deliver babies. I learned to, um, to provide prenatal care to people. And I always would ask myself and maybe some of the, uh, the pro, the, um, the attending physicians about like, what exactly are we doing here? Like if a patient is doing just fine and we see them each month for prenatal care, what are we doing for them? And I think the answer in that question is if somebody's doing just fine and the baby's developing just fine and there are no complications, we're not doing anything. But we don't know which of those patients or which of those babies might start to have problems. And so by seeing people regularly, and it probably doesn't have to be each month while you're pregnant, but by seeing people regularly, if something's going up, it gives going on, it gives us this opportunity to catch it. And so when we think about annual checkups, doing it every year, I don't know, there's a lot of data when my patients are healthy, I will say every year or two, maybe sometimes three, depending on who they are and what they're dealing with. But doing that regularly over time and getting in that habit, I think allows us to find something 
if something were happened to pop up. I think the other advantage, and, and this is hard because it doesn't, system doesn't totally work like this anymore, but having a practitioner who knows you, at least theoretically when you get sick or if you got sick, would give you somewhere to start as opposed to trying to find somebody who doesn't really know who you are. Now that that said, that's hard still to find in the medical system today. I don't know what it's like on the East Coast. In Chicago, nobody can get in to see anybody at the moment. It's virtually impossible. It's taking a year to get in to see specialists. And even my patients, you know, I'm not primary physician to a lot of my patients, but they'll call me because they've got an ear infection or strep throat or COVID and they can't get in to see their usual clinician. And so that I think is breaking down somewhat in the medical system. Some people in Chicago, I'm sure in New York, definitely San Francisco are getting around that by hiring physicians outside of that system and paying them an annual fee. And I remember one of my friends talking about it, that like it was a pain to pay that annual fee until he got sick and he needed somebody to talk him through it. And that person was there. And, and that creates all other kinds of questions about access and society and, and multiple tiers of, of care. And so there's no great way to go about that at the moment. But, but I think that to, to hone back in a little bit on what you're asking about the annual visits, those are the reasons to do them regularly, whether it's every year, I think is, um, you know, I think you're probably safe, you're young and otherwise healthy and, uh, you know, going every two years or every three years, and then you start getting into uh, to well woman's care and pap smears, and those should be done every three to five years and all of that. But I don't think you need to go every year. And, you know, to answer another part of your question, like, do those visits need to be fear-based? And the answer is no. But I think a lot of medicine is taught from a fear-based perspective. And so a lot of physicians will say like, you know, this lab says that you need to be under 200 and you're at 202. And so we either need to put you on this medication or you're really at risk or you need to make drastic changes. And I would love it if physicians and other clinicians could be a little bit more relaxed about those things and take a look at the whole picture and say like, okay, here's what I'm seeing. Let's talk about this together. And I think there are clinicians who are good at that and there are clinicians who are not so good at that. And so if you can find somebody who's better at having those discussions and not not shaming, not blaming, not using fear-based tactics, like then it's a, it's a win-win situation because that's, I think, what we're all looking for. Yeah, it's. I had a funny thought while I was listening to you, which was, um, uh, uh, maybe I'll I'll take a few different roads to get here. But um, I recently have heard stories from several of my clients that they had, you know, they finally had what for them was the most healing experience they ever had with a doctor. And in each of these stories, it was not about the doctor's, you know, medical technique or the diagnosis. It was in each story, it was about receiving kind physical contact. You know, one was a hug, one was a hand on the shoulder, one was holding their hand. And this just made so much of a difference, which, you know, completely makes sense to me as a mind-body therapist, you know, that feeling of safety. Um, And then I see a lot of talk among, um, like trauma-informed therapists, for example, 
giving folks a checklist to take with them when they go in to see a doctor. And a a lot of times it's framed as kind of like you're going into battle and you're going to be this advocate for yourself, which I get completely. And yet like going in to receive care as though you're going in to see the enemy, like it's kind of hard to feel safe when you're in that mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, a lot of, you know, medical doctors, whether it's their personal inclination or not, the training is very fear-based, but I was thinking, yeah. you know, a lot of my, um, my therapy clients have parents who are very fear-based, you know, and going to see their parents can ratchet up a lot of fear because they're just talking about everything that's going wrong in the world and, you know, nitpicking and all this stuff. Yet, you know, I'm not, if, if they want to not have contact with their parents, you know, I can support that. But if they're wanting to stay connected, I'm not going to say, well, don't ever go and see your parent again because they're so fear-based. So I'm right. curious if there are strategies to stay in connection with the medical field in that vein too. This is, so this is what I think about that. And I get asked this question fairly regularly. And so, um, so it's a few different things. So one, just the recognition that physicians, especially primary physicians, but really specialists too, are just so busy at the moment and whether they would like to provide the time or wouldn't, like they just, they, for the most part, they can't. And so the average visit I think is like three minutes long. And so knowing that there's probably not going to be a lot of time going into the visit. I think it's helpful just to have that going into it. Um, I think a lot of physicians don't mind getting messages ahead of time about what's on people's agenda. And so I actually ask for a fairly extended intake and my appointment times are longer and I set it up differently. But if people have the ability to send a message to a clinician and say like, hey, this is really important to me. I'm hoping we can set aside at least a minute or two to talk about this during the appointment. I think a lot of times clinicians will respect that and potentially even appreciate that. And and so that's one strategy I think is useful. A second strategy is kind of the opposite of what you just said. Clinicians are, and physicians are incredibly susceptible to praise. And so, you know, you read about how pharmaceutical representatives have found that like they can give a clinician a pen with their name on it and, and that physician will prescribe their medication forever, right? I mean, they're incredibly, we can be bought incredibly cheaply. And, but we like being praised. And so if rather than going into battle, you go in with the idea that you're going to drop some compliments to the physician, that can really change a lot of what goes on in the room. And so, you know, I know that you're busy, but I just so appreciate the fact that you look me in the eye when you talk with me or that, you know, you don't have your hand on the door as we're trying to have this conversation. And so I think a a compliment or two goes a long way towards changing the energy of that interaction. And then sort of knowing that the time is short, I generally suggest that people go in with, with not really more than one, maybe two, but probably one thing that they want to accomplish in that visit or that they would really like to talk about in that visit. And oftentimes it's maybe not ideal, but you can schedule follow-up visits to, to potentially talk about more. But if there's something that's really on your mind, making it a point, like I said, maybe get that information to the clinician ahead of time, but saying, 
even at the beginning of the appointment, hey, like at some point, I really want to talk through this. And I wonder if we can set aside just a couple of minutes to do that. I think that can make a big difference as well. Because, you know, I talked about this with some of my physician colleagues. Almost nobody went to medical school because they wanted to be a fear-based clinician who was mean to people. Like that's not why we got into this work, but the system sort of pushes people in that direction. But underneath that, I think a lot of clinicians really do want to be nice and kind and, and caring and help people, but, but they're stuck in a system where that's hard to do. And so if we can help them do that, it makes a big difference in their lives and, and hopefully in ours as well. Thank you so much for sharing those tips. And I, I love the tip about the compliment because to, you know, my interpretation is you're just, you're increasing the level of safety in the room. The physician is going to feel safer and they're going to treat you with greater feelings of safety when they feel safer too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so as we're winding down to the latter portion of this conversation, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, I called this podcast from chronic pain to passion. And the reason that I called it that is because the further I got into my own recovery journey and the more that I worked with others on their recoveries, the more I started to notice this, what seemed like a theme that the journey starts with, you know, a problem with symptoms and wanting to get rid of these symptoms, but it tends to morph into something that has little to do with symptoms at all. And is more about an opening up to, you know, it might look like very different things in different people's lives and opening up to a creative passion is the case for many of the folks who work with me, because I have a creative background. Um, for others, it's, you know, finding a purpose, finding a calling, starting a family, um, all these different kinds of expansions and openings. And I'm curious to know if this is something that you see, if it's something you, that you relate to and how you might relate to it either personally or as a practitioner who's working with others. For sure. And, you know, you just named a couple of situations, our calling, our families, you know, both of those were relevant to my own personal experience 25 years ago, that this was part of the doorway that I needed to step through in order to become the clinician that I needed to be and part of what I needed to do in order to, to start my own family, which I think has evolved differently than the family that I grew up in. And I see a lot of this in my patients as well. I mentioned um, Patty Olson earlier, or not by name, but Patty has, has talked publicly about her experience. And she was sort of out of the workforce for probably three or four years with migraine headaches before figuring out what was going on and doing a ton of work. And then, you know, she popped into my office one day. She's like, hey, I think I'm going to go to medical school. And she didn't get in the first time around. And then, you know, a year later, she popped into my office with an acceptance letter from Indiana University. And she went to medical school and residency. And last year, she was the headache fellow at Harvard okay. for the year. And now is a faculty member at Indiana University in the neurology department. And with this knowledge and 
um, an understanding of the nature of pain in people. And I've had other people who have given public talks who have talked about, yes, the symptoms were terrible. No, they wouldn't wish the symptoms on themselves again or anybody else, but they also wouldn't trade them away because these symptoms helped propel them to where they needed to go. To the extent that sometimes I say we get sick because there's some place to go. And if we're still sick, we haven't gotten there yet. And one of my patients who's done unbelievably well, when I first met her, she literally, literally could not go a week without having a medical appointment somewhere in the medical system. And so she's having um, 50 or 100 or 200 medical appointments a year, and nobody could get a sense of what was wrong, what was going on. And she finally was able to sort out what was going on in her relationship and what was going on in her life. And now she's the administrator, the, the main administrator of the biggest yoga, um, uh, the biggest yoga chain in the Chicago area. And I've heard her say, like, there were places that she needed to go and there was no way that she was going there on her own. And so these symptoms pushed her and pushed her and pushed her until she finally broke through. And, and saw the pathway that she needed to take. Wow. I, I love hearing these stories. It, it's just, oh, it never stops being inspiring to hear these stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, a question I like to ask folks on this podcast is what is the soapbox message that you're personally most passionate about spreading through the work that you do? And I ask that because, you know, we are, that's sort of countercultural to the medical model, what we're doing. So I'm curious these days, if you do have a soapbox message, what might it be? As human beings, we're resilient. Our bodies are resilient. We can heal. We can heal in a lot of ways that don't have anything to do with medications or medical procedures. There's a lot that can be done in a whole variety of areas in what we're eating and the kind of supplements that we take and how we think and how we feel and what our relationships are like that all add up to the sum total of our health. And so studies have shown that trusting our intuition and taking charge of our care make us healthy. And so if people are telling you that you're sick and you'll always be sick, that you can't heal, none of that is true. And there are ways forward that are very effective and very accessible that don't have anything to do with a prescription that you get or a procedure that you have. And so that's what I try to tell people every single day. And, and a lot of my patients who have understood that and run with it and are living very different lives than they once were. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. If there's a person who is listening to our conversation and they're very, very early on, you know, they've they obviously have some interest in a mind-body approach or they wouldn't be listening, but they're still feeling skeptical. They're feeling scared. They're not sure if this is right for them or where they should even begin because, I mean, we've talked about so many different tools and, you know, resources and, and all these things. Um, what might your words of encouragement be to the person who's at that place? There's a lot of scientific evidence for 
us doing what we're doing. And I think the more people understand that evidence, the more confidence they can be that they're in the right place. As you said, there's a ton of resources. Your practice is available, my practice is available. The Curable app that you mentioned is a very good place to get started, both with the research and the evidence and the type of exercises that are helpful for people moving forward. I would also say that it's different than what looks like in the medical system. And so I used the example of strep throat earlier. And you know, you go in, you get a diagnosis, you get a treatment, and then you're better. And three days and the medical system would make you think that it always works like that. When in fact, unless it's strep throat or bladder infection, it usually doesn't actually work like that. And so recognizing that this can take a while, it can take a while to get your bearings, that there can be ups and downs to it, that part of getting better is navigating the downs, knowing that the downs sometimes are to gain some momentum to go up to a higher place and that there are a, a lot of resources and a lot of people out there now who are more than happy to tell their stories, tell about, talk about how they got better um, from a professional level, lend their expertise, help guide people through this journey. And so for people who are just getting started or feeling stuck, there are a lot of people out there who are very, very interested in helping people move forward. And so don't be shy about reaching out and, and asking for that help. Yeah. Thank you for those encouraging words. Um, before we end, where can folks find you and your practice and what sorts of things can they reach out to you or to your practice for these days? Mm -hmm. People can reach out to me for just about anything. Interestingly, I trained in general medicine. And so I have the ability to take care of a lot it's our website is cormendihealth.com and you can find information about me and our practice and Michelle and Yana and Lauren and, and Erica and Howard. And so we're all listed there. That will take you to our intake coordinator and Alexandra will get back to anybody with information about how what was going on here and how to join. We also recently started a, um, a monthly membership called Cormendi Academy with a lot of information about mind-body medicine. And so you don't have to be a patient in our practice in order to join that. And again, you can reach out through our website and get information about that. My blog is at johnstraxmd.com. And so people want to read what I'm thinking about, both in terms of mind-body medicine and the medical system in general, that you can get information there. And I still do a little bit of primary care, a fair amount of endocrinology. And so people with thyroid issues or menopausal issues or adrenal issues, more than happy to do what I can to help people sort through. Uh, those types of health issues as well. Thank you, Dr. Strax. Thank you for always being so generous with your time. Thanks for being here and speaking with me. And thank you for the, the warmth that you deliver to folks who are in this field, who are coming in for help. It's, it's so appreciated. I know that I personally appreciate it. And I hear from lots of other folks that they appreciate it too. So thank you. Absolutely. I am happy to be here. Happy to talk about this. And thank you for all the work that you do in this area as well. I know from, from what I've heard from people as well, how much they appreciate what you do and, and how you do it. And so thank you for, for taking your knowledge and your experiences and incorporating them into the work that you do too. 
Oh, thanks for those words. Well, I look forward to speaking with you soon. Take care. Sounds good. Hey friends, it's Anna. Let me ask you something. If you're struggling with chronic symptoms, have you ever felt like pulling your hair out and screaming, why the bleep am I still in pain? That's definitely what I was asking earlier on in my recovery, so I can totally empathize and I would love to help you get some clarity. So I've created a quiz just for you that's called, why the bleep am I still in pain? And yes, you can take this quiz even if your symptoms are not pain specifically. Just head to my website, annaholtzman.com, and you'll see a big old button there that says take the quiz. So why don't you head there right now before you forget? And if you found this episode helpful, please go rate and review the podcast. That helps other people who are struggling with chronic symptoms too to find the podcast, and I would appreciate it enormously. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take good care.